My name is Lee Harper, and I'm the missions pastor uh, here at Stones. And if you have your Bible, I encourage you to go ahead and grab it and open it up to the book of Mark. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 32 this morning. Now, Adam told me something just a few minutes ago before, before the service started. He told me that it seems to be a tradition here at Stones that when Alabama loses, Scott has a guest preacher. <laughs> but there's a problem. See, like Scott, I'm from Alabama, and I'm an Alabama fan, so it didn't work out. So show me a little grace this morning as I'm in a state of mourning. Uh, but no, Scott, this morning, he's in the membership class helping lead that, so I'm grateful for this opportunity to be able to open up God's Word um, to hear what he has to say. So if you're there at Mark chapter 15, I invite you to stand, if you're willing and able, for the reading of the Word of the Lord. Mark 15, starting in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put, on his, clothes, put his clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in, the, in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And divided his, his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And when they crucified, crucified him, they crucified him with two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word this morning, as we come to this weighty passage looking at the shaming, the mocking, and the crucifixion of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, let, it, let our hearts be open to your word. This is a text that many of us have heard and read many times before, God, but please don't let it fall on hard or deaf ears, God, but open our hearts and our ears and our minds to what your word has to say. God, let us examine our hearts to see where we are like the mockers, 
And let us marvel at the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. It's pretty clear this morning that the central theme that is running through our text from beginning to end is the shaming, the ridicule, and the insulting of Jesus, our Savior. It begins with the Roman soldiers treating him like garbage. To the people passing by the cross who see him there and continue to mock him. To the religious leaders standing there like they have won a victory. To the very robbers who were nailed on the crosses next to him. There is literally nowhere for Jesus to hide in our text this morning. There's nowhere for him to run from those who are ridiculing him. Hurting him with their words and their actions. Rejection is all over. And it is an emphasis that not only Mark wants us to see, but in their retelling, the gospel writers want us to see. Is that while, yes, the crucifixion itself, the physical nails going through the wrist of Jesus, going, the, going through Jesus' wrist, and the nails going through his feet, now, this is part of the pain that Jesus went through on the cross, but it is not the only pain that happened there. In fact, the emphasis in all these Gospels is not on literally what happened to Jesus' body, but how he was treated by others. Like If you look at our text here, what we see is that when it comes to the crucifixion, the actual putting of Jesus on the cross, all that Mark says is that Jesus was crucified. That's it. But he shows us Another part of the cross that was horrible, and it was the mistreat, the way that those who were crucified were being treated. Mark wants us to see, the gospel writers want us to see that crucifixion was a horrible thing physically, but it was a horrible way to suffer mentally and emotionally. That the people who were crucifying Jesus were torturing him with their words and their actions. They want us to see the pain that Jesus went through. And the reason that the Romans and those around him were treating just this way is because the goal of crucifixion was not just to kill someone. The goal of crucifixion was to destroy them and to destroy their following. See, the Romans believed that if they crucified someone, usually those who were crucified were insurrectionists, people who were trying to overthrow Rome and their rule. They believed if they crucified these insurrectionists, that it would not only kill, take care of that person, but nobody else would follow them because nobody else wanted to suffer the same death. They saw this as the nail in the coffin for a movement, the cross. Because of the way they were treated, and of course, the horrible way that they died. So all those here wanted to see Jesus destroyed. They wanted to leave no doubt that Jesus was not who he said he was and that his followers should just run away and hide. So as we look at this text in this, this morning, I pray that the weight of this test, text sits on your shoulders and your heart as we see how Jesus is treated. And what we're going to see is that the mocking and the ridicule that Jesus has faced, they center, it centers around three claims that Jesus makes. That he is the king, 
that he is the replacement of the temple, and that he is the Savior. And after we look at these claims and the the mocking that Jesus faces because of these claims, what we're going to see, what we're going to look at is how this mocking that Jesus faced, what it shows us about our heart. Because often when we come to texts of the Bible, what we see is we see the good guys and we want to see ourselves in the good guys. But most often in the Bible, when there's an enemy, when there's someone who's doing something wrong, that's really where we see our true selves. And the same is true here. As we look at what the mockers, what we're going to learn is we're going to learn about our, our hearts. And after we see what this text teaches us about our hearts, we're going to see what it teaches us about Jesus' heart. So let's look at the mocking that Jesus faces for his claims. First, Jesus faces mocking for the fact that he is claiming to be the king. Now, does Jesus come out and say that he's going to be the king? No, he calls himself, the, he's called the Messiah. He receives that title of Messiah. And everyone understood that the Messiah was to be a king. And so when Jesus is brought on trial before the Romans, this is the charge that's brought up. We saw last week, Pilate calls, asks Jesus if he's the king of the Jews. This is what is brought to the Romans. And the reason this is what's brought to the Romans is because the people knew what Romans did to people who claimed to be king. They got rid of them. They killed them. And that's what happens to Jesus. Jesus is found guilty of this charge and this sham of a trial. We saw last week that Pilate releases a prisoner and takes Jesus to be crucified. And so Jesus has been condemned and he's handed off to the soldiers. He's handed off these soldiers to start their work. These men, these soldiers, are professional murderers. They have done this before. They know what it's like. And remember, the point of the crucifixion is not just the physical death, but it's the psychological and emotional torture that leads up to the crucifixion. So they know what they're doing. They are ready to put Jesus through hell before he even reaches the cross. And so as we look at what they do to Jesus, I want you to just to see how, how in-depth their torture was, to see that this wasn't just random things that they were doing, but in their actions, what they're actually doing is they're walking Jesus through a mock coronation. And they've thought through what they're doing so that everything they do has a purpose. So let's look at what they do and show, let's see how it shows a mock coronation. Now, a coronation is someone when someone is crowned the king. So when a king or queen dies, when the next king or person becomes king or queen, they're coronated. They are put, it was from the throne, when the, when the um, crown is put on their heads, they're made the new king or queen. So they're going to walk Jesus through a mock coronation. Now if you have your Bibles open, go ahead and let's look at this together. First, the beginning of this coronation begins where most coronations begin in a palace. So the soldiers bring Jesus out front of, front of Pilate into a palace. Then they go and they, they spread the news to those other, other soldiers around to come and see what's going to happen. And this group of soldiers comes up to what, what might have been up to 600 soldiers come to see what's going to happen. Now at a coronation, most coronations begin at a palace, a place of authority, and there's always military present because what's happening is, is you're saying that this new king or queen is in charge of the military. 
And they continue with this coronation. They put a purple cloak on him. The clothing of royalty. Something that's only to be worn by kings and queens. Then what else does a king or queen, a king need? A king needs a crown. That's part of the main part of the coronation. So what do the soldiers do? They go and they get thorns and they wrap it into a crown and they push it down on Jesus' head so that the thorns themselves go into his skull. And then Matthew tells us at the same time they get a reed, a piece of stick, and they put it in his hand as if that is his scepter. So Jesus is standing there, beaten already, bloody, looking weak, with the purple around him, the crown of thorns in his scepter. And what do they yell? Hell! king of the Jews. They mockingly yell at Jesus, hell, king of the Jews. Think about in, in England when the king, somebody comes king or queen, they say long live the king. That's what they're doing to Jesus. They're shouting out, recognizing him as the king. Hell, king of the Jews. But we see that they take what they do next is they take this reed, this thing that has been his scepter they've handed to him and they beat him with it. They beat him with it and they spit on him. And while they do this, they're bowing down to him. Bowing down is something you would only do to a king. And when they're done with him, they take him out of the palace because what you do in a coronation is you take the new king or queen and what do you do? You go and show them. You go and show the people, this is your new king. This is your new ruler. This is who you look to for authority. And so that's what they do to Jesus. They take him on his way to Golgotha where everybody else can see him. So the Jews can see their new king. But Jesus is so weak and so beaten that he can't even carry the beam of the cross. And so they get someone to help him on this walk, on this journey to Golgotha. And when they get him on the hill, they crucified him. They put the new king on his throne. And above his throne, this cross, is a sign that says, King of the Jews. Again, letting everyone know, this is your king. The Romans, crucifixion, the goal to destroy someone and that's exactly what the Romans are doing to Jesus and they're doing this because he has claimed to be king and if that's not enough the mocking continues and the mocking continues with another claim that Jesus made that claim that he said that he would destroy the temple there are people walking by Jesus on the cross and they begin to mock him and say this is the guy who said that he could destroy the temple and rebuild it. This is the guy who said he was strong enough to build, destroy this thing that we have built, that took so long to build. Jesus makes this claim when he's overthrowing the, the tables in the temple, and they ask him, what gives you the authority to do this in the book of John? And John records for us that Jesus says, I will destroy this temple, and in three days I will 
raise it. Now for us as followers of Jesus, we recognize that, right? We know what's going on. But here's what the, here's what the religious leaders and the others people hear when he says this. They hear him saying that he is there to overthrow the way of religion. He is there to overthrow, get rid of the religious practices. He is claiming to be in charge here and saying the temple is, no more, is not needed anymore. And so the people look at him on the cross and they're like, oh, how could this guy make such a claim? How could he do that? Look at him now here on this cross. Then finally, the religious leaders come. And they attack him for his, another claim that Jesus made, this claim to be the Savior. They look at Jesus and said, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that he, but we may see and believe. The religious leaders are pointing out that Jesus was able to heal, he was able to raise others from the dead, and able to forgive sins, but he cannot save himself. You are not the Savior. You are not the Messiah, the Christ. Look at you on the cross. If you were the Savior, then you could save yourself. They tell him to get down so they can see and believe. There's no way this is who you are. And so they mock Jesus. Jesus is mocked for being this king. For being this saying that he was going to replace the temple. That he was the Savior. Now before we move on to show, look at what this mocking tells us about our hearts. I, wanna, I want us to look at something. I want us to look at the irony of what's happening here. The irony of what's happening. These soldiers who are shaming, who are beating Jesus and shaming him. Trying to destroy him and his movement they think in shaming him that they are proving that Jesus is not the king but it is actually at his crucifixion that Jesus is shown to be the king that he is shown to be the promised suffering servant that he is promised to he's the promised one from Psalm 22 that is to be shamed he's the one from the Old Testament promise who will be ridiculed and beaten and nailed to a cross for our sins. He is showing himself to be the Messiah. The people passing by thinking that Jesus has failed to destroy the temple. It is through Jesus' crucifixion that the temple is destroyed. That what Jesus said he would do is happening. There is now no need to go to a temple because God's presence is found in Jesus. And Jesus' death on the cross is the final sacrifice. So there is there are no, there's no more need for sacrifices. They think they're, they're, thinking this, they're disproving Jesus' claim, but they're actually showing that what he said was true. And finally, the religious leaders think that Jesus not being able to get off the cross shows that he is not the Savior. But it is through his crucifixion that he does what is necessary to provide salvation for them and for us. Do you see the irony here? That these men and women, these people are working against Jesus, trying to destroy Jesus. But the very thing that they are trying to destroy Jesus with shows that his claims are true. They show that he is the king that he has come to destroy the temple, that God's presence is with him, found in him, and that he is the Savior. The irony. 
God's power in the midst of this horrible situation. Brothers and sisters, God is at work even through this mocking and ridicule of our Savior. Our God is mighty to save. Now what is this? What are these, this mocking, what does it teach us about our hearts? Because remember, when we look to Scripture, we, we actually see our brokenness and our sinfulness in those who are broken and sinful in the text. And what we learn about the human heart is that we hate the claims of Jesus. We hate the claims of Jesus. We hate the fact that Jesus claims to be king. For the Romans, they, can't under, they cannot understand. For, for Romans, they hate this claim because only Caesar was king. And anybody who questioned that deserved to die. But for us, we hate this, we hate this claim not because we think there's somebody else outside of us that should be king, but because we think we should be king. And so when Jesus says, I am the Messiah, I am the king, that means that we must answer to him. That he is in charge. That we don't get to decide what is right and wrong. That we are not free to do whatever we want. That we are not the masters of our fate. We are not the captains of our soul. He is. And so if Jesus is king, then that means that we must submit to him fully, completely to him and him alone. And our hearts hate that. We want to sit on the throne. We want to, think, we want to be in charge. Why? Because we think we know what's best for us. We think we know how our lives should go. We want to sit on the throne. And so we hate this claim that Jesus is king. Not only do we hate the claim that Jesus is king, we hate this claim that Jesus is the temple. Now, why would we hate that claim? Because what it means is that Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus saying that he's come to destroy the temple in three days raised from the dead. Again, he's not literally talking about the temple. He's talking about his, his body. And they would destroy the place where God dwells and in three days he would rise again so what Jesus is saying is I am the place now that you meet God if you want to know God you go to Jesus and that's it there are no other options he is the only option for the way you want we get to know God so if you're here this morning and you want to know who God is what he is like God the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and there's unity you look to Jesus that's the only way. There's nowhere else for you to look. There's nowhere else for you to look to know what, who, what, who. There's nowhere else for you to look to see what God is like. You find him in Jesus. And the only way to know God and to be in relationship with him is through Jesus Christ. And that means that all other supposed avenues to God, to know God, to have a relationship with God, they are not true. And our hearts hate to hear that, that there's only one way. Lastly, our hearts hate the idea that Jesus is the Savior. As Savior, Jesus says that we are sinful, that we are broken, and that we are in need of saving. 
and that this salvation is not something that we can do. We can't achieve this salvation. We can't be good enough. We can't earn it. And that claim to be weak is not a claim that we like. That is not something that we like to say about ourselves or see in ourselves. We are strong, capable, good people is what we believe. And so when Jesus comes along and says, no, you are broken people, sinful people, in need of a Savior, our heart rebels against that. We don't want to accept that that is true. But it's true. But it is true. Friends, if you're not a follower of Jesus, look at yourself. Do you think that you can be good enough? Do you think you can earn your way to know God? Scripture teaches that we are far too broken and far too sinful to do this. And so we need a Savior. But our heart wants to push these things away. Our heart hates these claims of Jesus being king, of him being the only way to know God, of him being the Savior. And behind all three of the, the hatred of all three of these things is this thing that we hate more than anything else. We hate these claims all because they're definitive. There's no wiggle room. Jesus is the king or he's not. Jesus is the way to God or he's not. Jesus is the way we were made right with God, or he is not. He is the Savior, or he's not. And we hate the confines that that brings to our lives. We want the freedom to be and do what we want to do. We don't get to pick and choose here. Either Jesus is your king, again, if Jesus is your king, or he is not. And the human heart hates those claims. Not only do we hate those claims, the human heart our hearts, we don't understand. The second thing we, that this teaches about us is that we don't understand and we hate that God works through weakness. We don't understand and we hate that God works through weakness. Throughout this scene, the point the mockers are making over and over and over again is that there is no way that Jesus is who he said he is because he is just too weak. The soldiers are hitting him, saying, if you were really the king, then I wouldn't be able to hit you like this. I wouldn't be able to beat you like I'm beating you right now. You're just too weak. You're no king. The people walking by are saying, you're far too weak to destroy the temple. Look at you up there on the cross. The religious leaders are looking at him and saying, you're the savior? Look how weak and puny you are. You look on that cross, hanging there naked with no power. How can you be the Savior. They don't understand that it is through weakness. It's through weakness that God works, that God saves. And we're the same way. We think that the way God should work is through greatness and power, through success and prestige, through signs and wonders. That's how we think he should work in, our li- in the world around us and in our lives. But this is just simply not how God usually chooses to work. God usually chooses to work in weakness. That's why as we look at our, our world, we see God moving the most among his church are in churches that appear weak from the outside. You look at places like China where there, the church has no power. It has no money. 
It has no safety. And what's happening there? God is moving. God is moving and churches are being started all over that country. And soon there will be more followers of Jesus in China than there will be in America. God is moving through weakness. Not only do you see that in China, you see that among Iranians. Right now, there is a church planting movement happening among Iranians. What that means is that God is moving in such a way that there are new churches, being Iranian churches, being planted daily across the world. You look at the places where it's most dangerous to be a Christian, Iran is on the list. There is no power. There is no strength. There is no resources. What they have is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they're faithful to go out and preach it and die preaching it if it means death. And God is using their faithfulness in the midst of their weakness to move in a mighty way. But in both of those, can- those, those instances, their obedience is costly. And it is through weakness that God is moving. But we, this is us, the church, Right? This is hard, but we, especially as Americans, it's so hard for us to believe that God wants to use our weakness in the world. So instead of looking for weakness, we look for power. We look for others who have money and think, gosh, if God could just save them, God would use them because they have so many resources. We look to politicians to think, if this person just becomes president, if this people are just in the Senate or in the House of Representatives or our governor, gosh, then God will move. We think that God needs power and strength and resources to move, but God doesn't, and usually that's not how God moves. God moves through weakness. He works through followers of Jesus we following him daily, faithfully following him in their lives. No matter how much money they have, no matter how skilled or intelligent they are, that's how he works. And that's how God moves in his world, is through weakness. But we hate that. And we don't understand it because that's not what we want. It's not what we want in our world. It's not what we want in our lives. We want to see God bless us and make us big. He want, we want, that's what, exactly what we want. We want God to glorify us. We think that God is most glorified when we are glorified. But what Scripture teaches us is God is most glorified when we are weak. When we are weak, because that is when we see that we need Him. But we don't understand that. And then when we don't understand that, when we, our hatred of that comes out, we become the scoffers. We literally begin to scoff at Jesus. Jesus, you are the king. If you're in charge of my life, Jesus, why is this happening? If you're the king, why is this happening? Why are you telling me to do this? You begin to quote scripture. Yeah, Jesus, work, God, you work all things out for good for those who love you. Yeah, look how that's working out in my life. God, you said you're going to do this. It doesn't look like you're doing that because things aren't going well. Yeah, that's true. God will supply everything you need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Yeah, okay, God, I'm holding on to that. doesn't look like that in my life. We become the scoffers. Why? Because instead of getting the, the 
instead of being lifted up, we are made weak. Because God wants us to see our need for him. But if we don't understand this truth, that God works through weakness, then we will become just like these people who scoff at Jesus. We will become just like them. But again, as we look through the world, we look through Scripture, we see over and over and over again that God works through weakness. So friends, brothers and sisters, if you look at your life and things are not going the way you hoped, you continue to fail, you continue to be hurt by others, or you hurt other people, I want you to know that God works through brokenness. God works through weakness. And when you doubt that, when it's hard to believe, rather than begin to scoff at the claims of Jesus, I want you to look at the cross of Jesus. Because there's no better picture of God using weakness for his glory. There's no better picture of God using something that looks weak to glorify him. God used the weakness of Jesus on the cross to provide salvation for us and for whoever trusts in Jesus. So our hearts, we see our hearts in the scoffers that we, we hate the claims of Jesus. And we don't understand and we hate that God uses weakness because we want him to use strength. But what does this tell us about the this scripture tell us about the heart of Jesus? It shows us how deep the love of Jesus is. We see a picture of how much Jesus loves us. See the shame that Jesus receives for being what appears to be a failure is a shame that we deserve. We deserve to be the one who's yelled at and scoffed at for our failures, for our sin, for our brokenness. But Jesus takes that shame for us on the cross because he loves us. Because he loves you. This is what he's doing here. He's standing there taking this ridicule and pain and shame because he loves you. And because he knows if you, he doesn't take it, then you will receive it. And so he's, sh- he's saving us from this shame we deserve for our sin and our brokenness. Because he loves us. You see this deep love for Jesus and the fact that he stays there on the cross. Brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't have to stay there. Jesus was not stuck on the cross. He chose to stay there. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says in her unbelievable children's children's storybook Bible, it was not the nails that kept Jesus on the cross. It was love. It was love that kept him there. Love for you. Love for me. Love for the world. So we look at this, we look at Jesus' deep love for us, that he stood there, that he had the power and the strength to get off the cross. And not only to get off the cross, but just to wipe out everybody who mocked him. He had that strength in him. He could have called angels down at any moment and it would have been over. But he stayed there because he loves us. That is how much he loves us. He loves us so much that he stayed there. Let's sink in. Let's sink in just for a second that that is the love of your Savior. He was willing to be beaten, 
to be mistreated. To die on a cross because he loves you. And because he knew that the only way that you could be forgiven of your sins is if he stayed there. If Jesus hops off that cross, brothers and sisters, we're not here today. If Jesus hops off that cross to what the Romans were seeking to do, it happens. If Jesus gets off that cross, his movement is destroyed. But he stays there. And on that cross, he takes the wrath of God that we deserve. See, not only was he there physically dying, but on the cross, God, the Father, pours out his wrath on Jesus for our sins. He takes the wrath that we deserve on the cross. And taking the punishment, God's wrath that we deserve, Jesus makes a way for us to, our sins to be forgiven. And that's by trusting in him. So on the cross, we see how deep Jesus' love for us is. How deep his love for us is for you. And friends, if you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus. I want you to know that this is true for you. That Jesus loves you this much. He loves you this much to die on the cross for you. And all he asks in response is if you haven't, for you to trust in him. To trust and believe that he is the king. That he is the way to God. That he is the savior. And if you have questions about that or would like to talk about it, come and find me. I would love to talk about it with you or somebody else in our staff. So this text reveals the deep love of Jesus and his heart for us. And as we look at the love of Jesus, what happens is it transforms our heart. That's the goal, right? Is that Jesus saves us. As we look at his love, it transforms us. And as Jesus transforms us, what we begin to see and believe is that Jesus is a better king than we are. That Jesus is the sovereign king of the universe. He is in charge of everything. He knows everything and he loves us. So he is a good king. So when Jesus tells us to do something, it's really what's best for us. And so when we are called to obey, we should obey because we know that we have a good king transforms our hearts so that we begin to see and know that Jesus is where we meet the triune God. And it is through Jesus. And if this is true, then we want to know him more and more. We want to read God's word where we see all the things, we see what Jesus taught and how he lived and how his followers wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We want to learn more and more about who God is and what he's like because we look at Jesus and we see how much he loves us and we're like, this is somebody I want to know because of his great love for us. And finally, our hearts begin to be transformed so we see that he is our Savior. And we remind ourselves of that daily that Jesus is our Savior, that He is what we need, that He has provided everything that we need for salvation. We need not look anywhere else. And so we worship Him. We worship Him. We look at Jesus laying on the, nailed to the cross here, and it should lead us to worship because this is our Savior. 
and we know that that's not where he stays. That he proves in just a couple days to everyone around and to the world that he truly is who he says he is. And he rises from the dead. So friends, brothers and sisters, this morning as we look at the mocking and ridicule of Jesus, I hope we see our hearts. But I hope more than that, we also see Jesus' heart for you. And I hope that we, in light of what Jesus has done for us, have hearts that are transformed by him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for Jesus. We're going to read this morning the amount of self-control and the amount of love that Jesus had for us. And it's mind-blowing mind-blowing how much Jesus loves that he was willing to go through this he was willing to go through the crucifixion because he loves us because he loves us so God I pray that in response to this love that Jesus has shown us Lord that we would come and worship him that we would lay our lives down before him and say you are our king You are where we meet and know God. You are our Savior, and we will do whatever you tell us to do, and that we will go wherever you tell us to go. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray.